Father, we thank you for every blood-bought saint who gathers in this room this day. Every person who has been regenerated and is born again within the hearing of this message, even this morning, we stand here as the rewards of the Lamb's suffering. The glory of God has gone forth and is echoed forth through the testimony of those who are called out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Those who are once captive and slaves to sin, now being set free through the Son, and we are free indeed in Jesus Christ our Lord. This rugged cross, our hope and salvation, Lord, we cling to with all our heart, knowing that upon that work of Calvary, our sin's debt was fully paid, having been nailed to the cross and crucified with Jesus Christ, our Lord. And now we declare that your name is holy and worthy of praise, that there is not enough breath in our lungs, neither are there songs that have been written to give to you the glory that you deserve. We only pray that with each day that passes, that you would quicken our hearts to offer to you more of the praise that you are so worthy of, that our lives might conform, Lord Jesus, as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice unto you, because you are worthy of the glories of your people walking in obedience according to your holiness, having been transformed in the first place by the sovereign grace of the Holy Spirit of God. I pray this morning as we open your scriptures that you would thoroughly equip us through the proclamation of your word for every good work, that it would work its way into our souls, convicting us of sin, transforming us into the image of Christ our Lord, sanctifying us, and indeed, if there are any who fellowship among us who have not placed faith in Jesus Christ, that your word would draw the lost unto salvation. In all of this, we pray that your kingdom would go forth, it would take ground, and that we would see more enemies of Christ subdued under his footstool until such time as the fullness of all your work is complete and we worship with all the elect forever and ever in the new heavens and new earth. We look forward to that day. Now open up our ears to hear, our minds to comprehend, our hearts to appreciate your holy scripture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a gracious gift we have today to join together in considering the Holy Word of God. Turn with me in your Bible, if you would, to Psalm 89. This morning we will consider the first third, if you will, or, so, or thereabouts of Psalm 89, verses 1 through 18. The first, God willing, of a three-part series where we consider this psalm. Some have called it the covenant psalm. And there's reasons for that we will soon see. In a moment, we'll stand for the reading of the Word. The aim of this morning's message is to equip the church to recognize and proclaim the excellencies of God. Or you could say, Psalm 89 equips us to recognize and proclaim the glories of God. The glory of God might be an abstract or nebulous concept for you. Psalm 89 puts a finer point on it. As we will see in the course of our text today, we find reasons why God is glorious. And that will be the primary thrust, may I suggest, in the theme of this morning's 18 verses. Under the title today of Holy One of Israel, we see magnified, glorified, and uh, proclaimed to us in this psalm, this song today, the virtues, the glories, the characteristics, the attributes of the Holy One of Israel. So would you stand out of reverence again for the reading of God's Word? And behold, in your hearing today, as the immutable, infallible Word of God is proclaimed in your hearing. Psalm 89 comes to us under this title, a masculine of Ethan the Ezraite. Here we have the Word of God in verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like our God, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, 
and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. Verse 9, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the, peop- blessed are the people who know the festal shout to walk, O Lord, in the light of your face who exalt in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. Verse 18, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. You may not have noticed, but perhaps in your Bible, you'll see right above Psalm 90, This division in the Psalter, it says book four. Yes, indeed, all the Psalms are ordered in your Bible according to five sections or five books. Psalm 89 closes, therefore, the third book of the Psalter. And as it does so, I think it's well suited to bring this chapter to a close. It serves as a great example of a book three Psalm featuring prominently three major themes, and these these themes resurfaced time and again in the third book of the Psalter. First theme in Psalm 89, and this would be our text today, is praise and adoration for Yahweh. Again, when you see Lord in all capital letters in your scriptures, that is the, uh, the uh, English way of translating the word Yahweh, the highest, if you will, of the names of the Lord, the covenant-keeping God, the great I Am. So praise and adoration for Yahweh, the great and only covenant-keeping God. That would be verses 1 through 18. Second section, uh, this is our worship text this morning, and Lord willing, will be our text next week, verses 19 through 37. In this section, Heman the Ezraite, the author, he recounts the covenant terms that establish the hope and identity of the people of God. Covenant, it's a promissory document. It is a certified legal statement of terms made between two parties. And in this case, it is God's promises to His people, sealed by His own vows. And this establishes, in the mind of the author, and for all the believing people of God at this time, and yes, even today, the hope and identity of the the children of Israel, the people of God. The uh, third major theme in Psalm 89, verses 38 through 52, could be identified as a lament and an appeal. A lament, a song of sadness and sorrow. If one is feeling distraught, out of sorts, disoriented, disillusioned, how might he express that? Oftentimes this is a theme in the Psalms. But not just a lament, but also an appeal to the covenant promise. In other words, given the scenario, the situation, how things have gone awry seemingly from the perspective of man. Lord, remind us and I remind myself of your promise that we might still have hope. Can you salvage our situation According to your promises, we pray that you would do so. This is the heart of the third portion of Psalm 89. In this structure, Psalm 89 shares the priorities of the Lord's Prayer. If you'll note in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, how does the Lord's Prayer begin? Does anyone know the first line of the Lord's Prayer? Young people, have you memorized that at all? How does the Lord's Prayer begin? Yes, I see a hand back here, Finn. Our... Remember? There we go, Ellie. Our Father who art in heaven. I think I heard hallowed be your name. Very good. You'll recall, our Father who art in heaven. It's a King James way. I learned it back in the day. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And the next line, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So priority one in the Lord's prayer 
is that the name of the Lord would be proclaimed as holy, that is high, lofty, set apart, attended with all, in our minds, all the glory that we can muster, that which gives Him praise, that which proclaims His beauty, that which announces His power, that which magnifies all that He has done. Psalm 89 shares this basic priority. Verses 1 through 18, our text today, they magnify the glory of the Lord. Ethan the Ezraite, the author, begins his psalm exalting the Lord and His name. And he does so in sweeping stanzas of worship and praise. Psalm 89, furthermore, a little background and context within the Psalter. Psalm 89 is situated next to Psalm 88, obviously. And we remarked in our last uh, sermon in the Psalms that Psalm 88 has one little note of hope in the beginning. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Psalm 89 is a good companion for Psalm 88 because it's as if you could take all of Psalm 89 and then squeeze it into this phrase, God of my salvation. In other words, what does it mean that God is a God of Israel's, indeed all the faithful's, salvation? All believers who hope in the Lord, what assurance do they have? Psalm 89 expands this question. The first 18 verses of Psalm 89 expound the greatness and glory of the steadfastly loving God of Israel. Charles Spurgeon comments on the usefulness of Psalm 89, evident from the first verse. He says this, What Ethan sung is now a textbook for Christians and will be so long as this dispensation will last. He's saying as long as history continues, Psalm 89 will be part of the textbook of the worship vocabulary of all Christians who avail themselves of all of God's Word. Spurgeon continues, We ought to have an eye to posterity, that would be our children, our children's children, we ought to have an eye to posterity in all that we write, for we are the schoolmasters of succeeding ages. Spurgeon, in this quote, acknowledges that he and the, or I'm sorry, that was the last psalm, him and the Ezraite, this one's Ethan the Ezraite, he is acknowledging that Ethan the Ezraite took upon himself the duty of obeying Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 11, and other passages of Scripture which, which say, when your children ask a question, why do we celebrate the Passover, what's the meaning of this event, and so forth, that we tell them the manifold works of the Lord. We expound the glory of God to coming generations. And Ethan the Ezraite has given us a textbook to do exactly that, and so we do so today. Yes, indeed, magnifying the Lord by recounting His deeds as they're recorded in Psalm 89. In this, Spurgeon and others, of course, have recognized that Psalm 89 serves as a hymn, a song of praise, and an example for believers of all ages. I'll give you a heading this morning and my uh, attempt to organize these first 18 verses under four major points. Here's the heading, Ethan the Ezraite extols the glory of God featuring four major themes. Four major themes expounding God's glory. Number one, the covenantal legacy of greatness. The covenantal legacy of greatness. Number two, a cosmic display of greatness. He looks at cosmic ideas and events and realities to proclaim, to display the greatness of God. Number three, geopolitical measures of greatness. He goes up into the heavens as it were. He comes down to earth and declares that Jesus is Lord uh, so to speak, of both. The Yahweh is Lord of both. And then finally, citizen benefits of greatness. If you belong to this kingdom, what are the benefits that accrue to you? What is the meaning or what is the uh, benefit, what is the value of this greatness to those of us who believe and count ourselves among the beloved? So that's a basic framework for our text today. So let us look a little more closely. Number one, Ethan extols the glory of God featuring the covenantal legacy of greatness. This would be verses 1 through 4. Notice again verse 1. He says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. My, with my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. There are two references that indicate an ongoing calling that he is serving in. He's an echo of what's come, bef come before him. And he knows his words will be echoed by those that follow. He is one in the long line, imagine a relay race, having received the baton of the manifest glory of the Lord, of the testimony of the Lord's glory. He grabs that baton, he is faithful in running with it, proclaiming, and then passes it 
through his psalm and through his life, presumably to the next generation. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. He says, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. There is a multi-generational call to teach, to proclaim, and to praise, and to worship the Lord. I will sing. Notice also in these first few verses a kind of a unique poetic device. There are four phrases that open the first four verses. Number one, uh, Ethan says, I will sing. Verse number two, he says, for I said. And then number three, you have said. And number four, I will establish. And this is kind of a way of, order, or of aligning. The author is aligning his proclamation, what he chooses to do, I will sing, and what he proclaims, I say, according to the word of God, for you have said, and I will establish your offspring forever. In other words, Ethan will sing and proclaim according to that which the Lord has established according to His Word. The testimony, the assurance, the proclamation, the, uh, the uh, uh, motto for living and so forth, the worldview, you could say, of, e- of uh, Ethan, the Ezraite, is that which he has received by the Lord's power to accomplish and by the, lo- and by the certainty of the Lord's proclamation. Psalm 89 is an aligning of the expression of worship and praise and the proclamation and confession of our mouth with that which God has already done and already proclaimed. This is a multi-generational call, as I've said. And what are we proclaiming to the next generation if we are to take our cue, our example from Ethan, the Ezraite? We are proclaiming to the next generation the steadfast love, the unchanging, unmerited undeserved grace and mercy of our Lord. In the Hebrew, the word, I've said it many times, is hesed. It is perhaps the most often repeated phrase in the Psalms, the steadfast love of the Lord. It it recurs over and over again. I don't know if it's Psalm 139 off the top of my head, something around there. There is a column and response format Psalm where there is a statement of the Lord's glory and then the audience is to repeat in the uh, in their here, after they hear, with their voices joined together, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. There is to be written indelibly upon the consciousness of all the faithful and their children this knowledge, that our future, our assurance, our foundation is absolutely dependent on the mercy and grace of a loving God who keeps His promises, who has made a covenant and never changes. This is the message that Ethan the Ezraite proclaims to the next generation. Are you proclaiming it to your children, parents in this room? Children, do you hear the message of the gospel when you assemble here? Do you hear about the grace and mercy of the Lord? Do you take note that these are the most valuable of truths that you could ever collect and to hide in your heart? I pray that you do so. One might ask, how can you sing forever? Well, there's a way that you can, especially if your songs are sung through all, all the ages. There is an in, it is an interesting fact that today we are proclaiming Psalm 89, much as it was proclaimed, presumably, by Ethan the Ezraite when he first wrote these words. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. Indeed, the very words of Ethan the Ezraite are echoed in the proclamation of the Word of God this morning, and in this sense... Ethan still sings. This is awesome. Secondly, not only multi-generational praise, but the covenantal legacy of greatness is also evidence in the permanence of the Lord's purposes. He says in verse 2, For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. Last week we were in Galatians chapter 3, and Paul said, That if uh, a change occurred later, a covenant could be said to be broken or altered. And even among human covenants, the understanding of covenant was, once it was ratified, it was sealed in stone. It was unchangeable. And Paul gives us this instruction from Galatians 3, how much more the word, the covenant of God. This idea is reiterated in in Hebrews chapter 6. Does anyone know who the Lord swore by when He made a covenant to Abraham? Young people, do you remember who God swore by? That's right, Israel, Himself. The Lord swore by Himself 
that he would keep his word. Why did he do this? Does anyone know? Why did the Lord swear by himself? There was nobody greater than him to swear to. In other words, a covenant would often include witnesses. And, those wit- and this witness would be one who stands to view, to observe what would solemnly taking place. And presumably in this covenant arrangement, if one or the other party was unfaithful to the terms, someone would have the power to enforce them. And God, because there was no one greater than him, said, upon my own word, he vowed according to his own renown. He uh, pledged, if you will, his own name to his covenant. So Hebrews says, by two unshakable witnesses, his promise and his oath, his covenant stands assured. Now this is echoed by Ethan the Ezraite in Psalm 89. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. In the heavens, what does that mean? Well, it's a poetic way of saying that which will outlast earth. That which is of the earth, poetically speaking, is temporal, subject to decay, entropy, will change, uh, can decay and, and, and wear away and so forth. That which is above the earth or in the heavens as it were, is that which is surpassing, that which transcends. It's a view toward eternity. And this is where the steadfast love of the Lord uh, and His covenant for the same is established. And so this is what He extols. The covenant legacy of greatness, the covenantal legacy of greatness that uh, Heman extols, glorifying the Lord, is this assurance that His word will never return void and will always last. It is permanent. And so it is, worth, or it is worthy of generational praise, and we should note its absolute permanence. And finally, under covenantal legacy, we see this dynasty situation that Ethan draws our attention to. Verses 3 and 4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Would you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7? 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, if you're new to the text of Scripture, if you're a new believer or if you've never studied the Bible that deeply, you might think to yourself that this is a collection of books that is fairly random. That is indeed not the case. The Bible points to certain certain key moments in Scripture that help you understand the whole. One of these key moments in Scripture is covenant ratification. That where, uh, those moments where God lays out His promises and His plan of salvation to particular individuals in the course of salvation's history. Those are key moments. They help you understand the whole of Scripture. I have another question for the young people today. Can you tell me uh, different key people that God made a covenant with in the course of salvation history? First of all, God made a covenant with who? Adam. Um, Israel's getting a lot of these answers. Let's see if someone else might answer number two. Can someone give us another covenant example? God made a covenant with Adam and God, God made a covenant with? Eve. Eve, well, I'll take that. Who else? Uh, David. David's a great example. That's our example today. There's another important one in between Adam and David. Abraham. Uh, another one. Let's think of the law, Mount Sinai, a couple of hints. Moses. That's enough for now. So, in the course of salvation's history, God makes promises to Adam and Eve. You remember? The uh, son of Eve will one day bruise the serpent's head, so that's Adam. And then we have Abraham called out from among the nations to be a specific light to the lost till one day that all nations, actually membership from all nations comes into the covenant. Then thirdly, we have Moses It's a continuation of the covenant terms given to him on Mount Sinai in the form of the law and so forth. And then we have a king singled out, David. These are important moments in Scripture. So let us note one of them. This is the moment that Psalm 89 focuses upon, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. This is the prophecy of the Lord to David, quote, "'When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers,' 
I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And notice verse 15, but my steadfast love, that's that has said love, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Nathan, of course, was the prophet bringing the word of the Lord to the king who received covenant assurance of a dynasty, a Davidic dynasty, a line of kings that would continue forever. This gives glory to the Lord, and we will close with a note on the Davidic dynasty after a bit. But first of all, I just want you to notice that Ethan extols the glory of the, God, of the Lord by featuring this covenantal legacy of greatness. He does so by praising and continue, uh, multi-generational praise. He does so through <coughs> highlighting the permanence of the covenant and also the fact that God sing, singled out individuals through history to grant His word and promises, including King David. Second major point, Ethan extols the glory of God by featuring cosmic displays of greatness. Cosmic refers to that which is above us, that was, uh, stretches the imagination, that which compels our attention into the ineffable or the hard to understand, that which excites wonder, that which is associated with different adjectives like awesome, amazing, majestic, unfathomable, and so forth. There's a cosmic, there are cosmic displays of God's greatness that Ethan points us to. First of all, he points to the heavens. Verse 5, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. The first half of that verse, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, reminds us of Psalm 19.1. Uh, Judah, do you know Psalm 19? The heavens... That's correct. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. The heavens themselves are a cosmic display of the glory of God. The heavens, the extent of the uh, universe, is more than we can comprehend, certainly more than we can observe, however hard we try with the sum of our telescopes and technology. There is a reason why the heavens are so vast. There is a reason why we, this earth is so proportionally small and God's glory is so manifestly great around us. What is that reason? Ethan the Ezraite knows. It is to pray or to offer praise, to testify to the wonders of our God. Even in the unbelieving world, there's a certain imagination and awe that is connected and associated with the heavens. You know, it was the State of the Union address recently and I heard something that I've heard often in the course of recent American history. I think the president said that American rockets will one day go back into space. America presumed to uh, claim the moon for herself when we planted our own flag on the moon, if you believe that we really went there. Some of us joke that perhaps it was all a hoax, but whether it was true or not, one thing is for certain, the moon has captivated the attention of world governments such that we're still trying to get back out there, explore. There is a certain pull that the heavens have for us. This raises the question, why? Is the moon or distant stars or traveling to Mars, is this something that we should pursue to prove to ourselves the greatness of America or the champion of the collective human spirit or the great things that we can accomplish as a unified global people? Uh, sure, if you want to build the Tower of Babel again, that would be a good reason to go to space. But in reality, that's idolatry. The primary motivation to explore, the primary motivation to behold the wonders of the universe ought to be to understand the incredible wonder and glories of our God. Who are you, O little one on this earth, ant-sized or less in light of all the universe, that God should pay attention to you? Is not the steadfast love of the Lord 
greatly magnified when you see how small you are compared to the expanse of the universe? There is nothing in your size or significance in and of yourself that the Lord should pay attention to you, but He has. And why? Again, to magnify Himself, to show forth the praise of His great name, to proclaim His hesed, His steadfast love. And so Ethan recognizes that the heavens praise the wonders of the Lord. They're under cosmic display of greatness, there's something of a celestial council that he acknowledges as well. 89.5b, your faithfulness, the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, but more than this, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Verse 6, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Note holy ones, that's an interesting identifier there, interesting term. Um, And we see further in verse 6, who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? There's four references that are parallel here. So far we have holy ones, heavenly beings. Then verse 7, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. There's holy ones again. And awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, that's the fourth reference, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. Who are these holy ones, these heavenly beings? Who are these holy ones, these heavenly hosts? Will you recall at the birth of Jesus Christ, what happened in the fields? There were shepherds out tending their flocks, and suddenly the sky was lit with hosts. Hosts means a multitude. Heavenly beings, celestial figures, angels from the realms of glory, shouted, unto you is born this day a child. This is a literal fulfillment of Psalm 89. The heavenly beings were praising, giving glory to the Lord. There's something very mysterious and will always be so in part this side of glory to us about what an angel is, what they look like, do they have wings, can they fly, can they not, can they go through walls, are they always invisible? You know, we have all these questions that captivate our imagination about these celestial beings. The main point that Psalm 89 wants uh, to convey to us is that there are whole worlds and whole realms that are glorious beyond our understanding, and the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, is the creator of those realms, and He is their God, He is their sovereign as well. And so the council of the holy ones, these principalities and powers, even to the negative, some ways the Psalms refers to them, they all are under the sovereign direction, the ultimate lordship, the sovereign cosmic government of our King of kings, of our Lord of lords, of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. This is a cosmic display of the greatness of God, the fact that even spiritual beings owe their existence to Him, and ultimately they are subject to His Word. Thirdly, there's the chaotic sea, cosmic display of greatness. Notice verse 9 and 10, particularly 9. It says, You rule the raging of the sea, when its waves rise, you still them. It goes further, you crush Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. A lot of trivia this morning. Who can tell me what Rahab is, what it refers to? Uh, Egypt, that is one correct answer. Who else knows what Rahab refers to? As far as I know, there are three references in Scripture associated with Rahab. One is the nation of Egypt. The second is actually, spoiler alert, a sea monster. And third, uh, it's a woman's name in Jericho. But for our purposes today, those first two are instructive. Rahab sometimes refers to the empire of Egypt, the most fearsome government at the time. And secondly, to a sea serpent. More on that in a moment. Verse 9 says, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Do you guys remember the miracles that Jesus wrought in His ministry in the New Testament? Some people think of Jesus' miracles like something a magician would do to impress His audience. Isn't it awesome that He can walk on water? Oh my word, David Blaine, how did you do that? You know, we have magicians these days who through illusions and tactics, all this other stuff, try to recreate these spectacular events. Did Jesus walk on water to wow His audience as if it were a cheap trick that a magician could uh, kind of replicate to some degree today? Absolutely not. It's infinitely more deep and, and profound that Jesus walked upon the water. When Jesus' feet, as a 
physical man, yet fully God, walking on this earth, extended upon the plain, the surface of the seas. What was demonstrated in that action is God is God of every single element, whether earth or sea, whether heaven or the uh, worlds below. Everything is under the sovereign authority of the Lord. You see, the sea was a picture of the intractable, uh, ungovernable forces of nature. When you, as an ancient sailor, head out to sea, if you were a pagan, you would pray to your gods, you'd do your trinket things and whatever, offer incense and sacrifice for a safe journey. Why? Because depending on the storms, this, this entire effort, this voyage could be totally out of your control in an instant. Well, there is one who controls the seas. Even today, we understand this, do we not, in a hurricane? A hurricane can come in in a matter of hours. It can destroy an entire city. We've seen that in our own history. A hurricane can force every last, just about, except for the fools that stay, every last person in a coastal area to evacuate their homes post-haste. It can chase people by the millions to the north in our land indeed. But there is one, the scriptures say, who rules the raging of the sea. There is one who tames the hurricane. There is one who commands the waves to rise and at his word can say, peace be still, and the storm becomes a placid, rippleless pool. And this is our Lord. The fact that He rules all things, including that which we have the hardest time imagining being tameable, the chaotic sea, or something like a hurricane, is a cosmic display of His greatness. And for this, Ethan glorifies the Lord. Point number three, geopolitical measures of greatness. Ethan extols the glory of the Lord by featuring political, government, and earthly, temporal, terrestrial examples of his sovereignty. Notice verses 10 through 14. We've already remarked that Rahab often refers to Egypt. And notice this language. You crush Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. As history has recorded the works of our God, archaeologists today are still digging up the dead carcass of Rahab in ancient Egypt. Oh, look, a new tomb. Oh, look, another inscription. And they'll spend hours, days, years with little brushes wiping away the sand to see what Rahab, her ancient glory, she might have boasted. The fact is, ancient Egypt is crushed today. The pyramids no longer stand for the unquestionable authority of the pharaohs and kings that they once did. No, she has lost her glory. She has deferred to another. She ultimately has been subdued by the judgment of the Lord. And although it might have taken a long time from our perspective, in the arc of history, she was squashed like a bug. The Lord crushed her. Why does he use this term Rahab, which is also referred to as a sea monster? It's because in the Scriptures, authorities who claim that they have equal or greater standing than God, nations who are proud and what they can boast by chariot and horses and wealth and influence, they're referred to as beasts, beasts like sea serpents. Beasts that we see in uh, the book of Revelation. And what happens to beasts that claim that they have more significance and authority and power than the Lord and do not defer to His law? They do not kiss the sun? Well, like Psalm 2 says, one day the Lord becomes angry in the way and those beasts are crushed and their carcasses are laid out for the archaeologists to find in later years and centuries to study out of some curiosity the glory that once was. But the glory that remains is the glory of the King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who at times and places of his own choosing exercises his sovereignty geopolitically in destroying nations who stand in rebellion and opposition to him. There's a dominion claim in verse 11. It says, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. There's a big uh, conflict over our southern border. There are many in our nation who say, we have a right to defend our borders. There are borders all over the world in the hundreds of nations that, you know, this globe boasts, and those have been in dispute over the years. But I would turn you on your own time to Acts 17, 26. It says there that the boundaries of the nations, the dwelling places of the people, are ultimately established by God. And this is echoed in Psalm 89 in this dominion claim. 
The earth does not belong to the United Nations. This corner of the earth does not ultimately belong to the United States. We don't have a divine right to rule from sea to, quote, shining sea, you know, manifest destiny. There's only one true manifest destiny in all of history, and that's the fact that the heaven and the earth belong to the Lord. So fear the Lord, you nations of the earth. Your boundaries were ultimately established by the sovereign King of Kings. They weren't established by your greatness. Models that are popular t- today and have you know, become the campaign slogan of certain administrations, make America great again, can be very dangerous. Why? Because the greatness of any nation needs to bow before the greatness of the King of Kings. And only when we do so, only when we fear the Lord, do we have any assurance that there will be safety, security, and longevity within our land. Otherwise, if you make yourself great again in your own strength and exalt yourself as an idol above the knowledge of God, you're going to find yourself in Rahab's position one day, crushed like a carcass, buried under the sands of history, a curious lesson for future history students. This is a geopolitical display of God's greatness. He owns heaven and earth. He is the king of kings over empires. He owns boundaries and strongholds. Ultimately, they're allotted by him. And finally, he rules according to his righteous standards. Notice verse 13 and 14. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand, high your right hand. More than this, verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Perhaps we see three categories that captivate the attention of even lawmakers today under the heading of government. Number one, sovereign authority. Who says? Number two, righteousness and justice, law and order. Sovereign authority, law and order. Number three, compassion and safekeeping, care, well-being, welfare, health care. All these things are popular buzzwords even in the governing of our own land. But Psalm 89 declares that by these geopolitical measures actually extol the glory of the Lord. In other words, there is one that is mightier than all. By his mighty arm and his strong hand, his high right hand, he accomplishes all his holy will. The greatest authority in our land is not the president, it's not the Supreme Court, it's not the sum of our military ability to wage war against our enemies. The greatest power in our land is the Lord himself. How would you like to arm wrestle the mighty arm of the Lord? Do you think you'll win? What if you stand up 11 aircraft carriers on the one side and you have the mighty arm of the Lord on the other? He will crush you like Rahab. What if you stand up your new law made in the image of man's preferences these days, the progressivism of a humanistic era, and you say, I will wrestle you, mighty God, for law and order. He will crush you like Rahab, and so on and so forth. Psalm, the author of Psalm 89 made no bones about it. His king of kings, his Lord, his ultimate authority in his life was the one who had absolute authority. He had absolute monopoly on strength, Righteousness and justice, steadfast love and faithfulness. Indeed, sovereign authority, law and order, and the future well-being. These are all things that are in play in our, on our news uh, channels uh, daily. But it's important to recognize that the Lord is sovereign over them all. Final point this morning. Ethan extols the glory of the Lord featuring so far the covenantal legacy of greatness, cosmic displays of His greatness, geopolitical measures of his greatness, and finally, citizen benefits of his greatness. Uh, What value does all this have for us, his people, if you're in him today? Well, his section here closes um, magnifying this. He says, verse 15, Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Notice, as we look carefully at this language, there is a reciprocal relationship between the glory of the Lord and the well-being of His people. It's, It's quite beautiful. Verse 15, Blessed are the people who know the festal shout. What is the festal shout? It's the praise and celebration. It's the hallelujah. It's the hollering forth. It's uh, the heralding 
of the greatness and the, and the, and the uh, value and the virtue. It's thankfulness for this feast that is set before you, if you will. So the people who express themselves in this way, offering to the Lord their thankfulness in joyful praise, they also are those who walk in the light of His face. You could say it this way, that those who express their joy in the Lord walk also in the expression of their glory. So the Lord shines His face upon us, giving us light in order to live, and then we shine back to Him our festal shout of thankfulness for what He has done. Last week we talked about in Christ language, union with Christ. And it's the way that Paul, it's a phrase that Paul uses to describe how closely related the character of Christ is with the experience of His people. And this is similar to the language of Psalm 89. The Lord shines His light on us, expresses His glory to us, and we express that in our praise. Verse 16, similar language. Who exalt in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. Notice, we exalt in Him and we are exalted by Him. We exalt in Him and we are exalted by Him. One day, if you are in Christ, there will come a second resurrection. Your body will rise from the dead. It will be transformed. It won't be like the mere grain that was sown here, but it will be like Christ's, a resurrected, glorified body. You will be exalted with Him. This is an amazing truth that we look forward to in our future. And it's due to this fact that those who exalt in the name of the Lord will be exalted by Him. We will share in part in the glory of the Lord as we are transformed more and more into His image, looking forward to the day of a glorious, mysterious on this side of glory, existence that we will share with Him at His right hand one day. Powerful. Verse 17, for you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. Again, this concept of reciprocal you are glorified by our strength, and your favor is our strength. Do you see? When we are strong in the Lord, it glorifies the Lord, and His strength is our glory, or our identity, or our security. For you are, for you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor, our horn is exalted. It's this sort of exponential experience of the glory of, Lord, of the Lord that emanates forth from those who are so closely connected with their Savior that they begin to partake and experience more and more of His beauty and His power and His majesty. This is the amazing benefit of being a citizen of the kingdom of God. There is this close relationship between the character of God and the fortunes, the destiny, the fitness, the well-being of His people. Now, as we close this morning's message, there is a summary verse in verse 18. Our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Our shield is the Lord. He is the one who provides for us safekeeping. He is the one who provides for us refuge, assurance, strength, protection. More than this, He is our King, the Holy One of Israel. Not only are we protected, but in our King, the Holy One of Israel, we are triumphant. In summary, the Holy One of Israel is glorified and His salvation is realized by those who place their faith in His faithfulness. Do you place your faith in His faithfulness? That perhaps could be a phrase to summarize this first portion of the psalm. The we have listened to the glorious praises of those who place their faith in the faithfulness of the Lord. The fact that He has accomplished your salvation. The fact that He is King of kings and Lord of lords over every other king in power. The fact that He has made a promise to you that He Himself to fulfill, and it is absolutely assured. That is His faithfulness. Do you place your hope, your assurance, your confidence, your trust, your hope, your happiness, your well-being for tomorrow in His hands? This is a song of faith in the faithfulness of the Lord. Who do we look to? This psalm looked forward to a son of David. It spoke of the Davidic line. 
And the son of David, brothers and sisters, has come. The benefit of Psalm 89's fulfillment occurs to us in greater degree than perhaps its author could have known these many, many years before the arrival of Jesus Christ. On your own time, note in Matthew, a few references, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 120. These are, uh, you can go back and listen and catch some of these. We'll probably cover them in a little more detail in future weeks. Chapter 9, verse 27, chapter 11, verse 23, chapter 15, 22, chapter 20, verse 30, chapter 21, verse 9, chapter 21, verse 15. All of these references in the book of Matthew identify Jesus Christ as the son of David. He is recognized by its author, Matthew, by an angel who delivers a promise to Joseph, by two blind men that were healed, by people who witnessed his miracles, by a Gentile, Canaanite woman, by two more blind men that were healed, by the crowd that cheered his entry into Jerusalem as if he were their king because he was, and finally, by the children in the temple. All of these examples recognized that Jesus Christ was the Son of David, the fulfillment of Psalm 89, the one who had all this power and glory in the sum of His being and manifested all of this in the sum of His work. Do you recognize Him today? Have you seen the Holy One of Israel in Jesus Christ, your Lord? Do you place your faith in His faithfulness to die for your sins and to be resurrected, assuring that you will join Him one day in glory? If you have not, I beg you to hear the Word of God and to turn your eyes unto the Holy One of Israel. Let us close in prayer. Father, we are so thankful for Your Word that instructs us in the way. We are so thankful for the beautiful contours of Your revelation that shine for us in so many facets of Your glory. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to have our minds renewed by the instruction of your scriptures, and that you'd indeed call the lost out of darkness into your marvelous light, and call the, loth the lethargic out of their complacency unto faithfulness, and call us back to worship with your people, Lord, with more, more reason now evident to give you thanks and praise in our worship songs and in the hearing of your word and the fellowship of your saints, even next week, as many weeks as you're gracious to give us this side of glory. Looking forward to the day when we will join our King as your subjects in his ultimately consummated kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for revealing these things to us. Would you seal your word upon our heart by the power of your spirit? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.